This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Watchfowlers. Welcome to the North American Waterfowler Podcast. My name is Elliot, and this is episode number seven. If you're looking through the episodes on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're watching them and you're curious, you're like, why does it show episode three, episode four, episode six? Why doesn't it show one through whatever? And the reason that is, is a part of my episodes are going on over on my Patreon page. And the reason that I'm doing that is I feel like the guys that over there that have been supporting me deserve more content. So if you see a gap where the first episode is three, it's because episode one and two are on Patreon. If you want to get more North American Waterfowler, you can meet us over there at patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting. And a lot of times what I offer is the guests that I have on, as you'll hear on today's podcast with John Devney, I take questions from Patreon patrons over there and I pose them to the guest. Also, we have live streams where you can come in and actually watch these podcasts happen live with my guests. So if you'd like to support this and you'd like to get more of the North American Waterfowler, it's patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting. So like I mentioned, I've got John Devney on today. I just got done recording it with him. And I haven't talked to John for a couple years, probably like three or four years. We had him on the Duck Hunt podcast a couple times. I, I'm an educator. I actually had him zoom in live and do some um, presentations with my students on wetlands. This guy is a wealth of knowledge he is the chief policy what's the title chief policy officer for delta and man i'm serious guys i could sit down with him and talk for 10 hours not even talk listen i could sit down and just listen to him because i, I don't know about you guys but if you're eating up if you're an ocd waterfowl hunter which is a term i referenced before 
meaning you can't stop thinking about it. This guy will feed your brain with stuff you didn't know or maybe you have heard it before. I'm telling you, this is going to be some kind of fantastic episode. And I'm trying to get really, really meaty with some of these podcasts. The last podcast I released was with Matt Farmer, who is a public land manager, biologist. And I had guys contacting me and saying, man, I've never heard that stuff before. And so I'm trying to have some episodes where I just talk about my hunts, but I want to do some deep dive, meaty waterfowl content. And this one you're about to hear today is as meaty as they come. So be ready. It is going to be fantastic. Stay tuned. Um, I do want to tell you about my last hunt I went on Saturday because it was a very special hunt. Um, there was a zone opening in my state where we had been shut down with waterfowl hunting for a couple weeks, the whole state. And then one of our zones opened up and um, I got word that there just wasn't very many ducks around, which is a shocker because in this state, when the ice comes off, there are ducks and the ice has come off. We start the reverse mi migration. Sunset's coming later. The birds are starting to work back up north. They're following the ice line. And so I kind of got word that there wasn't any ducks around. And so I, I had an idea of where I could shoot some geese. So I thought, well, I'm going to do one or two, th two things today. I'm either going to go about an hour and 45 minutes away to this one particular location and duck hunt, or I'm going to take this day and scout these geese for Monday because I was off for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I was got very, very fortunate. My buddy Cole, who's actually in the video of this hunt, it's on my YouTube channel, Freelance Duck Hunting. Um, so if you want to see the hunt I'm talking about, it's getting really good views. I'm getting a lot of positive feedback on it. It's on my YouTube channel, Freelance Duck Hunting. But Cole was going out with his brother, and they had never hunted this spot before. So we used Onyx, and we did some, sent him, I sent him some pins, because I know this area pretty well. I'm not an expert of this area, like I feel like I am of my more local area, but I know the area. I've hunted, been hunting it for years. So I gave him some pins, and I'm like, I just don't know if I'm going to go. So I was like, tell you what, you and your brother have never been there. You guys should maybe get there right around shooting time, look around the place, and, and I'm like, if you get there and you find a lot of birds, let me know, and I'll just hop in my truck and come down. So I got, thank you, thank you, Cole. Without Cole and his brother, this doesn't happen. This hunt doesn't happen for me. So 7 o'clock, text goes off. I'm starting to get some messages from Cole. And he's like, there's birds and people. Lots of people. He's like, there's 30 trucks in this parking lot. I saw someone post online. It was like 90 trucks there. Um, but loads of birds. And I know this one pool that I thought, well, this pool's kind of hard to hunt, kind of hard to get to. It's big. Um, and I told Cole and his brother, I was like, I think I'm just going to go off and hunt by myself in this pool. Because this pool, there's no place to hide. There's no cover. And so I'm like, I mean, there's a little bit of cover. I'm like, I've got my layout and my dog. It is, you want to shoot ducks? Layout boat, one person. And you disappear. And so I got my got my truck, cruised down there, went straight to the pool where, I, and I kept getting updates from Cole. All the time, he's like, man, ducks here, ducks there, but there's so many people. And I'm like, all right, so I go right to my pool. And I meet these two guys coming out right as I got there. And they were really, really nice. Guys that are coming out after shooting a limit are a lot, talk a lot more than guys going in that haven't shot a limit. They were really nice guys. And so I was talking about, they had shot their limit. They gave me kind of the, 
you know, some tips that this group is over here, this group's over there. So, you know, I think you can maybe go. Anyway, I got in my kayak and I went to where they, I know that they had been hunting, which was about 250 yards from, I had a group in a boat line about 250 yards away from me that had just been in there and they were already shooting ducks. And then I had some other guys I was like, I don't know, six, 700 yards from. So the closest group was 250 yards. This other groups were like 600 yards away. Not anything to be concerned about at all. And they had broken ice to get in there. It was 22 the night before. And so without these, without, if I had come in early with my kayak layout blind, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have broken this ice, but they had broken it and they had a little ice hole in there. And so we got to the ice hole. It was just me at that time. I was still in communication with Cole and his brother. And man, it's like from the time I start throwing out decoys, there's just birds working. Not not necessarily working me, but just flying, 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 flying. And I got my final approach, live mallards all set up. I actually had a dozen of those and half a dozen pintail, half a dozen gadwall. God, gadwall, because the pintail are already coming back north at this point. They should be. So you, we, I didn't see any. I saw one. but And so within 20 minutes, I had my, my mallard limit. And if you see the video, they were like, they were landing. I was basically landing them at mo at 20 and then shooting them coming off the water. I shot a double. I mean, I got on, I got on it fast and it was just laying down there with Georgie behind me, easy retrieves. And as a guy that likes, I love hunting two guys between one and three guys. That's my comfort zone. If I can hunt by myself or with one other person or two other people, that's my comfort zone. But being out there by myself with my little Flatlander Kennels dog, it was just heaven. There was I, I was laying in my layout boat and looking up in the sky, and there was like mallards at all different levels. There was mallards at 70 yards over my head. There was mallards at 150, 300, 500. There was probably 2,000. At one point in time, there was like 2,000 ducks, mallards in the air above me because I'm laying down, looking straight up at all different altitudes. And at that point, I was like, I'm not trying to film this. I'm not doing anything but just staring at this because it was a blue sky behind it and it was a, a sight to behold. And so I shot my five. Actually, I shot four. I counted five because when I went in there, there was a bird with a broken wing that someone else had shot. And I made the decision I didn't want to leave a cripple. And so I killed that one and started, I started my hunt already having one bird. Because if you kill a cripple, if you shoot it or you touch it, you have to count it. And so... I got that one. So I was only able to shoot four other than the cripple I found. So I had my limit. I called Cole and his brother over. I called him on the phone. I said, how are you guys doing? Because they were in a different pool that was really crowded. How are you guys doing there? Like, well, you know, we're not really finishing. We've got a couple. I was like, if you guys want to come over here, come on over because it's really, really good. So they pulled out of that pool. Um, I laid there and just decoyed ducks because I already had my limit. I was looking for a six, a bonus duck. I was hoping for like a pintail. And I was hoping that's what I was hoping for was a pintail, but it never happened. But I just laid there decoying. I could have shot six or seven other more mallards by the time it got, they got to me. Um, then they came over. They had layout boats too. So we just went three side by side. And long story short, short we ended with, um, they were one away from their limit. The day heated up, the ice melted off, the bird's, became a little bit more finicky. Um, three layout boats were harder to hide than one. And so we ended with one away from a limit. It was just a very, very special, special day. Uh, I could have ended at noon. Because I, I, I was, basically, I could have been about 11.30. I, I started hunting at 11. I was done by about 11.30, 11.40.
I'm like, well, I'm going to let Cole and his brother come over and just do a little filming now and just see if I can shoot my bonus. So I was able just to sit there and film Cole's dog. He's actually my training partner. Um, and Georgie are good buddies. So they got to work together. It was awesome. Just awesome. So I've got, I think, three more duck hunts left and then some snow goose hunts. So I've got two hunts this weekend. I'm going to do probably one on the final weekend. So I've got three hunts left. And after the season's over, I will do a recap on the season and give you kind of guys my totals and numbers and thought on how the season's gone down. So that's kind of what I've been doing. So I'm excited about the end of the season. So we're going to go ahead and do a break here real quick. And when we come back, we're going to get right into John Devney. And I'm telling you, this information is going to blow you away. You're going to be at the edge of your seat listening to what John's got to talk about with us. So this is the North American Waterfowler, and we'll be right back. Well, welcome back. I am here with John Devney. He is the chief policy officer over at Delta. We've got a whole list of things we're going to get into, but I first just want to start with John. Just kind of tell us about your role at Delta and a little bit of just how you got involved there and kind of what your yearly job is with Delta. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I'm probably like a lot of your listeners. I started duck hunting, grew up just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, my dad took me on my first duck hunt when I was four years old. So, you know, I've had a lifelong passion for waterfall hunting. Actually got started by Delta as starting as a member and actually offering to uh, submit. I was doing a little freelance writing at the time and offered to do some writing back in September 1998. And that catalyzed me starting to interview and ultimately getting a job starting in November of 98. In my role, Elliot, has been kind of all over the map. <laughs> I started um, working on communications, marketing, membership, was the editor of our magazine for a number of years, um, had a role in our the development of our major gift program and our event program. And then about 10 years ago, uh, moved over to the public policy side of the organization and, you know, for a number of years, looked after everything from, you know, municipal discharge laws all the way up to the federal farm bill. And today, because we've been able to hire some great guys, um, you know, my role is primarily focused on federal policy, working on things like conservation funding. Uh, now we're ginning up for the 2023 farm bill, working on fish and wildlife service regulations in all manner of federal policy and then managing uh, our policy across the continent, you know, the United States and Canada, all the way from municipal issues, all the way up to federal policy in both the United States and Canada. Wow. Is there anything on the horizon that's pressing right now, as far as at the federal level that you're either concerned about or really excited about? Um, you know, the 2023 farm bill is a big one. Um, comes around every five years and your listeners are probably wondering is why do these guys care about the farm bill but if you would read your pheasants forever magazine your ducks unlimited magazine your delta magazine you're going to hear a lot about the farm bill and i think 
the public would be surprised to know that the farm bill invests more money in conservation than any other piece of legislation that the American public supports. And so, you know, programs that people have heard of, the Conservation Reserve Program, Wetland Reserve Easements, and in, in a whole string of acronyms that I could bore you and your audience to tears with, is the way that here in the United States, we've chosen to invest significant sums in, in working with farmers to conserve and enhance habitats on their land. So it's an incredibly important piece of legislation for ducks and duck hunters. Um, it has incredible promise, but anything, a piece of legislation like that where it has incredible promise, there's also some risk too. So it's, it's a really important lift and you typically spend about a year and a half getting ready for a farm bill, a year working on a farm bill, and four years implementing a farm bill. <laughs> and the circle just keeps right. going around and around and around. So that's going to be a big one for us here in, in the new Congress. Is there a chance that that bill um, won't pass? Um, farm bills always pass. Um, in years past, there's been delay in passage. Um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you know, sometimes it's purely political. Other there's other times there's been more pressing legislative matters. And so farm bills have been extended and then acted on later. Um, but the farm bill, I mean, it's a bit of a misnomer, right? I just talked about the value that it brings to conservation and why guys that like to shoot ducks should care about it. It also provides for the nutrition programs, SNAP, the food stamp program. So there's a lot of people that, and not to mention all of America's farmers and ranchers who depend on that certainty to have a bill that supports what they do to feed and clothe the world, right? And so there's a lot of political inertia to do farm bills on time. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, as far, as far as the waterfowl goes, it basically just incentivizes farmers to make good decisions that help the environment, help wetlands, help waterfowl production in general. Yeah, and, and lots of other things. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of practices that would be beneficial to lesser prairie chickens or all sorts of other critters and all sorts of other habitats. I mean, our interest in the farm bill is is fairly narrow. Um, you know, we want to preserve swamp buster, which is a mechanism uh, that protects small wetlands. Uh, the conservation reserve programs historically been incredibly important to breeding ducks. Uh, the wetland reserve program is really important for providing habitat and staging and wintering areas. Um, there's a program that NRCS administers called the VPA HIP program, which is providing block grants to states to create access to private lands. And I mean, we all know that as duck hunters, access to high quality habitats, one of the biggest challenges we face. And so providing an incentive for states to develop good programs to work with private landowners to create access is a real high priority as well. So, you know, that's sort of the stuff that we're thinking about going into a farm bill. 
the things we're prioritizing, and then we'll be working the halls, both the House and Senate, to influence in the right direction. Is there a somewhat loud voice that's against the bill? Is there any group that's just vehemently against it that's uh, um, petitioning or protesting against this bill for any reason? Not particularly. I mean, you know, again, you're dealing with such an incredible diversity of constituencies, right? You've got, you know, farmers from, you know, rice farmers in Arkansas to cotton farmers in Texas, corn and bean farmers in the upper middle west. Uh, you've got other commodities that are produced around the country. Those people all want the certainty of having a farm bill. You've got the conservation community. Um, and then you've got the people that rely on nutrition programs. And mm -hmm. so it's a pretty, it usually doesn't, it doesn't have vehement opposition. Sometimes people on either pole ideologically will take wax at it for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, the other nice thing about farm bills, and, and if you'd listen to any of the leadership of the last number of farm bills, this is a place of really good collegial bipartisanship. By I didn't know Campbell. that existed anywhere. I didn't yeah. know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, so it's a great place where there's really good coordination bicamerally between back and forth between the House and Senate. And it really is, a, I think, a place where I think Democrats and Republicans feel safe working together just because, again, that diversity of constituencies. Right. Well, I am dying to talk to you about the state of the population in, in general of waterfowl. Before we get to that, though, I am curious, how was your personal waterfowl season? You're up in North Dakota, Yes, right? sir. Yep. How was your personal waterfowl season and just kind of the general area? Because there's some years that I've had a really good year, but most people in Kansas say it was a bad year. So your year versus your feel on what how everyone felt about the season. Yeah, my season stunk. Uh, hmm. Probably the worst duck season I've had in really? many, many years. Now, part of that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. We had some big policy stuff we were working on. The other thing is we had, um, you know, we've been in a pretty significant drought here for the two previous years. Um, 2020, 2020 was very dry, uh, especially in the summer. It didn't start out dry, but it really dried out in the summer. 2021 was very dry and we went into we went into last year really pretty dry we had some precipitation in the fall and then we got hammered with a couple of really big april blizzards mm -hmm. um and and so we went from drought to wet really quick mm -hmm. um and we'll talk about this later but you know you know, I think we had pretty good duck production in certain areas of the prairies. And the habitat looked dynamite. It had been dried up, which prairie wetland systems need. We got that timely water, um, and things looked great. And we were great till about the 4th of July. We had a big, huge rain here on the 4th of July. And then, honest to goodness, we didn't get a drop of moisture. And I think... What happened was, I think we didn't have the base. Mm -hmm. We had a bunch of water that ran off in the spring on account of those heavy snows. We had some timely rains. Stuff looked great. But once it got dry and hot, th that water just went away. 
And actually, the place that I like to hunt, which is a public marsh east of town, um, it was in poorer condition this year than it was a year ago. Really? And, and you know, I think part of it is busy job, three kids, lots of stuff going on. The When the hunting stinks, I think we all probably fall into this gap. We get into this self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, it's going to stink, so I'm not going to bother going and out and scouting. And yeah, and then and then we wonder why we're not finding any ducks and all that sort of thing happens. So yeah, it was a crummy duck season for me. Um, I think a lot of hunters here. Uh, one of the things that hunters I think here and across many areas of the prairie said is, "Holy cow, did we? There were pintails all over the place." Um, the guys hunting fields, they were talking about it early in early Canada goose seasons in August, all through the early duck season, probably until the later part of October, were just raving about how many pintails they were seeing out there, which is a great sign because we know pintail populations aren't doing great. Um, but yeah, I just I was on the wrong side of the coin flip kind of all Yeah, yeah. I found myself doing the exact same thing you were talking about. My year has not been horrible, but it's been, it was down a little bit. And I went through several really poor runs and I got in that same mentality of, oh, I'm just, I'm going to do bad. I'm going to do poor anyway. And I found myself, I had to kind of coach myself mentally because I had an example of like thinking it was going to be bad and it wasn't not, but I was like having these mental talks with myself of like, you can't get to the point where you're just sitting on the couch because you think it's going to you know, you're going to have a poor opportunity. So that's, that's interesting that, that you would, that you would say that, um, going into the overall population, I think there was a lot of confusion and question marks. I know on my part, because we didn't get counts there through COVID for a couple of years. Yep. And then the count that we got, I was hearing different information all over the place because the count was kind of down, but then I heard people saying, well, that's because they were only doing this count way before this was a pre-hatch count and the number's really better than it was than it actually was. And so I still didn't feel like I had a great grasp on what the population was just because there was so much static in the background of people yep. talking. So just kind of lay it out there what you know as far as where was the population at before breeding, after breeding, and how does it look moving into next year? Yeah, I think... And one thing that's really important to note is, and this is something, conversation that I think we're trying to have better than we've done in the past. Because what we shoot as hunters is not the breeding population. What we shoot is the breeding population plus the number of juvenile ducks we make, right? Mm -hmm. And, right. you know, if you, if you look at Fish and Wildlife Service data, so Fish and Wildlife Service collects wings from hunter shot ducks. They send them off. In fact, the Central Flyway does it in Flint Hills, Kansas, Elliot. And mm -hmm. all the hunter shot wings, and I've been participating in the wing bee for years, cut one wing off, send them off. And what they can do is they can look at, they build, you know, they can understand what our composition of our harvest is, how many ducks hunters are shooting, uh, the species of ducks we're shooting, the sex of ducks we're shooting, but they can also tell us the age of the ducks are shooting. And we know what happens when conditions are dry is we have poor production. 
We have poor age ratios. And, but then conversely, when we get wet, ducks can, ducks can reproduce incredibly strongly given the right environmental conditions. And so when the prairies are wet, we can have these huge spikes in production. And so when you look at the BPOP numbers, what you're seeing is a snapshot in space and time that is really important because we want to know how many we start with, right? The population's crazy low. We know that's not great. But what's really important to hunters is what we add in annual production each spring and summer. And so in a year like this, the breeding populations weren't great for most species. I think we had good production in parts of the prairies, maybe great production in places like South Dakota. I think we had pretty good production in North Dakota. Um, I think we had pretty good production in Manitoba. Alberta was really dry and very poor. Big areas of Saskatchewan were probably a little bit improved. And so it becomes this sort of mixed bag. Um, you know, I would bet the fall flight, going back to the breeding population, because we didn't, we didn't know it for the last two years, but if we took the breeding population and what we would estimate annual production to be, I would guess this fall flight was considerably better than the last two, but not the boom fall flights that we had in years like 2010, 2011, mm -hmm. 2012, and 2013 where we had wall-to-wall -wall water across the prairies, incredibly high maypond counts. In those years, we know, we can go back and look at the harvest records and see that we had incredible production. That was not what we saw this year. Now, the har do the harvest numbers, do they typically track what we're finding with the population? Like, if, if we get a good population bounce up let's say it goes up 10 percent, or I, I don't know what a good percent would be but what a percent you guys would would expect to be you're like wow this was a really good spike in population does that directly always show in harvest numbers um we see it really clearly sort of this relationship between age ratios and harvest and if you think about it in i'm sure you've got some listeners that are really avid like goose hunters and there's a huge difference between a guy that chases snow geese and a guy that chases mallards. The guy that's chasing snow geese is driving along a field and he'll see a feed. And he'll say, he's glassing that field and he's saying, oh my goodness, look at all the grayback snow geese. And he mm -hmm. says, that's a bunch of snow geese I want to hunt. Because he knows the juveniles are much more vulnerable to falling into the decoys and falling into the guns than a, a flock of snow geese that is pure white, right? Hmm. The right. same thing's true with ducks. The challenge is when you're driving around scouting ducks, you can't decide that you can't really say that greenhead's an adult and that greenhead's a ju juvenile or that gadwall's an adult and that one's a juvenile because we can't tell from a distance, right? In fact, most hunters probably can't tell in the hand. I'm not great at telling them in the hand and I've been doing this a while, right? <laughs> right. And so... The one we don't have that sort of real-time feedback mechanism from hunters in the field um, but what we do know is that juveniles are harvested at a higher rate than adults are they make more mistakes <laughs> they're probably not in as great physiological condition they're easier to decoy um, they'll 
they'll work to my bad calling and poor concealment. Um, they'll let you get away with more. And so years when we have bumper crops, a young dumb ducks, we have higher harvest. In years when the fall flight is primarily comprised of smart old adults, the inverse is true. Hmm. And it's just more often people just saying, man, those ducks are weary. They're weary. The the yeah. If you're so, a three-year-old mallard, you've seen some things. Yeah. Right? It's, it's interesting to think the what goes on in a mallard's head and how they react to things and what their learning curve is. You know, I've got a... I've got a YouTube channel, and I've, gosh, I've got four or five hundred videos. I've, I've recorded every hunt in my past eight years, basically. And on the videos, I will get varied comments about educating birds. And it's normally from people down in Louisiana, down south, and say, don't, don't do this, you're educating birds. Don't do that, you're educating birds. And, I, and I, it's always just been a head-scratcher to me. It's like, what level of behavior actually does have a lasting impact on educating a bird? And that bird can hold that memory, memory through a breeding season, coming back down the next year. I just always wonder how much do they retain of coming in and, and getting shot at? How much harder is it actually to shoot ducks down south than it is here? And is it because they're learning or is it because juveniles are getting shot? I mean, if all the easy ducks are getting shot in the Dakotas and Nebraska and Kansas, maybe... It's as simple as they're not juvenile. I, I don't know. Do you, do you have any it, thoughts on that? It's really interesting, Ellie. If you look at the harvest, the big beneficiaries, I'll use the Mississippi Flyway data because it's what I'm most familiar with. The big beneficiaries of boom crops of ducks, young, du young ducks, when we have that great production like we did in 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2013, the South benefits from it disproportionately. Hmm. Now, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a function that there's just more of them in the system. In those, in you know, if you're in Louisiana, you get a 60-day duck season. If you're in Minnesota, you rarely get a 60-day duck season because your ducks, because you freeze in early November, right? right? Same right. with North Dakota. But where you see that relationship, you don't see it as much in the North. You don't see it as much in the mid in sort of the mid latitude states. You really see it pop in the south. So it's hmm. not like, you know, maybe in years where it's poor, we crop off. You know, that I mean, North Dakota doesn't shoot that many ducks. Kansas doesn't shoot that many ducks. South Dakota right. doesn't shoot that many ducks. But maybe in a really poor year, the few ducks, the young dumb ducks that are out there, get cropped off the system or disproportionately cropped off the system before they get down south. But I think, you know, hunting pressure and ducks' behavior in relationship to hunting pressure is an interesting thing. I don't know what they do. I don't know what they learn. Here's what I do know. Every time I shoot into a flock of ducks, the ducks that don't die fly away. Right. They don't turn around and come back. <laughs> and so... <laughs> yeah. so and, and if, if you're hunting in this part of the world, if you shoot at a flock of ducks and there's ducks sitting on the other end of the pond, those ducks get up and fly away. So they pretty quickly learn. And, and it's not like when I take my daughter in mid-September for youth day, when she shoots at a duck, they all the rest of the flock lands. They all fly away. So ducks are learning over whatever interaction. And 
and you know, in it's my experience as a kid that grew up in Minnesota as a diving duck hunter and read all the great books and you know lived on Les Cuba paintings. I believe that the best day to shoot a duck was with leaden skies and big winds. And as a guy that hunts in North Dakota and has seen had experiences elsewhere, I want to hunt on blue skies because I know that I can hide on a big blue sky way better than I can on a gray day because the ducks just pick you out. Even I don't even think you have to be a real old smart duck to see a guy huddled in the cattails and know that's a bad deal right there. Right. The shadows that you can yep. create are certainly with blue skies. Yeah, that That's interesting. Would you be a proponent of, because I've had some guys, quite a few people that do not will not shoot into a big flock because of that. And I've had, I've seen a lot of those comments, but I know when I'm out hunting, if we get a big flock in, I want to, I want to shoot. I want to, to what level does educating birds play into your personal hunting? If at all, I think, you know, I had this little place, Elliot, before I took the job with Delta that I had a little wood duck spot, not too far from where I grew up. It was the kind of spot I can go out and shoot. Back in those days, the wood duck limit was two. And I could go shoot a limit of wood ducks pretty much every morning early in the season. But I was really careful with it. And, I mean, listen, this is when I thought that the world owed me a big pile of dead ducks every time I went. <laughs> I was pretty mad at them in those years, right? <laughs> and But I figured out this is a little itty-bitty spot. It was on private property, so it was I was in control of my own destiny. And I hunted off the ducks. I didn't charge into where they were sleeping, where they were roosting. And I never shot into big bunches. I shot at pairs and triples and four packs. But when the big bunch of 50 came out, I wouldn't touch them. And I've had situations here in North Dakota where uh, that favorite marsh complex that I was telling you about that I hunt, you know, there's years that it'll be loaded with ducks mallards pintails teal and i remember one year where i mean this is a public marsh and we had it all to ourselves and you know we were very gentle with it uh we never hunt the core areas where the birds were spending most of their time we hunted on the edges um we never shot before the ducks the mallards and pintails got up and left we'd back shoot them um and so and we were rewarded by that. Now, the challenge is not everybody has a public marsh 20 minutes from their house that nobody else is hunting, right? Yeah. And so, and, and I don't have the benefit of having lease land or land I own for duck hunting. So I'm like everybody else. Now, I just happen to be in a circumstance where I could manage my fortune, but not many people are in that situation, right? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if the world was perfect, you probably wouldn't shoot into big bunches of ducks, but, and you know, if I'm out there and I've been hunting all day and the only bunch of ducks I see is a, you know, flight flight of 30 mallards, I'm going to shoot into them. Right. Well, and down South, especially like Arkansas, um, they, they don't want to shoot at singles and pairs. Their whole goal is just, is to shoot into flocks because they've got bigger groups of guys. And it's like, the, the more I get to know people, the more I realize in duck hunting, the opinions and how people go about their business 
is so different yep. throughout the country. And I would love to find a way to get really good resources and just kind of compare people's mentalities. Because I've seen people say, do not shoot into a flock. And then I've got, I know personal people that like, no, we're not going to shoot that single. Look at that huge flock. And it's right. just really, it's it's interesting to kind of think of. And I don't, I don't have a clue. I know public land hunting, if I get green in my decoys, whether it's one or two or 30, you're going to shoot. I'm a, that's right. I'm, I'm going to shoot. Public land hunting is very, very difficult task yeah. in any state. And, and I think that, I think the wonderful thing about duck hunting and listen, I'm not, I, I enjoy spending a little time in the tree stand during rifle season. And I, and I really enjoy upland bird hunting. I love chasing pheasants, love chasing sharp tail. But if you shot a pheasant in Iowa, you shot a pheasant anywhere, right? The cool thing about duck hunting is your hunting experience and the species you see and the way you hunt in Kansas is so different than the way the guy hunts in Maryland, is so different than the way the guy hunts on the Texas Gulf Coast, or in Arkansas, you're seeing different species, your strategies are different, the habitat's different. I think that's a fascinating thing about ducks right is yeah. that you know i've never shot a black duck they're my great white whale right and you know i talked to guys that you know would wouldn't kill and you know are bored shooting black ducks that have never shot a redhead and vice versa right and so i think i think that's the appeal of waterfall hunting is it's so it's so diverse based on where you are what you're hunting and, and goose hunters are different than duck hunters. And snow goose hunters are different than honker hunters. And speckle belly hunters are different than mallard hunters. And so there's all this diversity, which is, I think, the wonderful, wonderful thing about waterfall hunting. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Oh, I could not agree more. Even within my state, we've got prairie marshes where there's no trees around. We've got holes on the east side of the state, and I'll get... You know, people don't like me to call them timber holes because they're not in Arkansas, but a lot of trees, right. birds coming down through trees. We've got the Kansas River that is a completely different atmosphere. We've got reservoirs and Big reservoirs. even from weekend yep. to weekend, the difference in the aesthetics is right. so, it's just such a wonderful thing about it. And then when you get in there, just the thought of where this duck came from and the, the traveler, it's just, I think it's why people, when they start doing it, they just like I grew up an upland hunter. Now my uncle owned dogs. We we only hunted five to six times a year. We you know we weren't major into it, but once we started waterfowl hunting, that was it. I haven't shot a pheasant for gosh 25, 30 years. Right. And I think those things that you're talking about is kind of the reason that people just get just hooked into it. Yep. Um, they'll circle back around. Um, how how do, does the population look as far as do you know what the weather conditions are supposed to be? Are they calling for um, good rain this spring? Are they calling for it to be dry? Is it too early to tell? Pretty early to tell, although I will tell you that right here where I live, um, you know, we got hammered with some 
early snow this year. I think we set a record for the start of winter for snowfall here in Bismarck. Um, and lots of areas are like that. There's some areas I talked to a dear friend of mine that I played dog games with in northeastern South Dakota. They got a lot of snow. Um, you know, all my buddies down south were saying, man, we'd love to see you get all that snow. I said, that's swell. Come up with a shovel because um, I'm tired of it already. <laughs> right. um, but the, the thing about it is you kind of, you know, the perfect storm for making a great breeding season is we have good moisture in the fall, which we lacked a lot of places this year. Um, southwestern Manitoba would be the exception. Little uh, Certain areas, eastern North Dakota, had pretty good residual moisture. A couple areas in South Dakota. Um, the perfect scenario is you have a good frost, good fall precipitation, good soil moisture, you get a good frost seal in the fall. You build a big snowpack over the course of the winter. But the, the problem with winter snow versus spring snow is generally light on moisture. And the other thing about it is, and we've been in this really weird sort of Pacific Northwest weather pattern for, where we haven't seen the sun in like two and a half weeks. You get the temperature up a little bit and you get what's called sublimation, which means that moisture that's in the snowpack is evaporating. And it doesn't have mm -hmm. to get that warm to do that. So even when you get big mountains of snow and you know, time, times of year like November, December, or January, you lose a lot of that moisture value before the ducks come back. So, mm -hmm. you know, the really important snow, the really important precipitation is that stuff that happens in March and April. And then right. hopefully is sustained into May and June in early July. Why not this far down south in Kansas? This is by far. The two previous years, we were okay on water, not great. But this year has just been Terrible. by far the worst for us as yeah. far as drought. I mean, yeah. Cheyenne Bottoms is completely dry. That's yep. not all because of a drought. They were doing work. But, I mean, this just, in fact, I don't know if you've heard the phrase the hourglass, but Cheyenne Bottoms kind of works yep. as an hourglass yep. for Kansas where everything sucks through it. And as a result, um, it feels like, and I, I have a couple public land manager friends that predicted this, like the mallards specifically have just bypassed the central part of the state. Right. Because there's some still some good marshes out there. And I talked to them like, they should be here. They're not here. They should be here. So it's kind of like this drought has kind of changed. I feel like things have been, have shifted to the east this year. And I'm on the eastern side of, side of the state. But the drought just, we're all here. We're, I'm sure you are too. We're just fed up with it. I mean, yeah. you lose places. The, some of the more private places that you have to hunt that are just based on seasonal rains that aren't, aren't cultivated by, by public land managers. They're just kind of hidden little spots. All those we lose to the drought. And so if you're working really, really hard and you found a couple of hidden holes here or there, or maybe it's based on reservoir levels, the reservoirs will come up and spill into these holes. Well, in years like this, there's just, they're just gone. Yeah. So, well, I think, you know, you know, I think ducks, I think ducks are pretty good at finding water. <laughs> and, and I think water at a landscape scale, I mean, big ducks find big water. And I mean, you, you talk to the guys and, you know, a place like Arkansas, it, those ducks know when the White and Cash River flood. And mm -hmm. they pour into those areas. I don't, and they're probably pouring into those areas from huge distances, right? Um, somehow they know where the water's going to be. I don't know if they're reading the maps or they can sense barometric changes in barometric pressure. 
but their ability to be on the front side of rising water is really incredible. And, and I think, you know, our, you guys were incredibly dry. Missouri was incredibly dry. Arkansas was incredibly dry. Mississippi was incredibly dry. And then all of a sudden, Arkansas gets nine inch rain in the, in the white river floods. And I think it just, I think, you know, those interseasonal changes in habitat conditions, I think have an incredible impact on how ducks are distributing on the landscape. Yeah, I I think you're right. There's a, a complex I won't name in Southeast Kansas that when the ice comes off this time of year, it's ducks like you have never seen before. And I had a buddy that was actually coming up from Arkansas and he scouted that entire complex and he's like, I only saw 30 ducks. It's right. like those ducks should be should be there, and they're just not. And the same the same guy, which I didn't, I was unaware of how ducks can find water with rain. And so this is like a completely new thing to me because um, he was telling me, and he hunts down on the White River some too. He said we've got some holes that will have no water for long periods of time. The rain will hit, and those ducks will be there in the morning. That's right. First thing. Right. And they just. Like you said, they've got some type of God-given, I would call it God-given, yep. radar that allows them to just be like, oh, the water is 300 miles this way. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, they they kind of have to be, right? Like, I mean, that's what these critters have made their living on for a long time. And their ability to find and access new food resources is something they spend... I think they spend every bit of time working on it or thinking about it when they're in the mid-latitude states and the wintering states. I think that's all they do. I mean, a duck on the wintering grounds has three things he needs to do. Survive, eat, and procreate. That's all they have to, that's all they do. And that's all, every bit of energy they have is just oriented around those three tasks. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible species, absolutely incredible species. So with the drought, and I don't remember who told me this, but I was told the worst thing about a drought is it gives farmers a chance to do away with lowland, dried up wetlands. Um, is that something, is that a true statement? And if so, do you, do you guys monitor that at all? You know, the problem, the problem is not when a guy plows through a wetland. So I'll give you a perfect example. You and all your listeners buy a federal duck stamp. Your federal duck stamp has created probably, in my opinion, the greatest conservation legacy in the history of conservation anywhere in the world. And what I mean by that is through the purchase of duck stamps, we've secured about 35% of the wetland base in the U.S. Prairie Pothole region. Most of that is not in fee title, meaning the Fish and Wildlife Service owns it behind a refuge sign or a waterfall production area sign. The overwhelming majority of it, I'm, I'd say probably 90% of it, that, that's a ballpark figure, nobody should hang me on that, but over 90% of that is in easements. And the Fish and Wildlife Service easement program, program allows the farmer to farm through those wetlands when they're dry. And because a lot of those wetlands, the wetlands that are most important to breeding ducks are small, shallow, temporary and seasonal wetlands. 
that's what drives the duck factory. And if you told a farmer that, okay, and they're little itty bitty, and there could be 50 of them in a quarter section. And if you told the farmer he couldn't seed through them, he sure as hell is going to sign it up for a program, right? Mm-hmm. And so it isn't the the annual cultivation in dry years that farmers are in there planting a crop, harvesting a crop, doing what farmers need to do to grow a crop. It's when we permanently lose that wetland basin through drainage. And right. those are fundamentally different activities. Where and they're actively going in and manufacturing a way to drain it. Correct. That's right. when we lose the duck production potential. We don't lose any duck production potential if a farmer in Stutzman County, North Dakota, seeded through a wetland in the drought of 2020 or 2021. Because here's what happened. The snow came back, that basin filled up again, and the productivity is right back to where it was. And so that isn't what drives it. It's that permanent loss of that habitat through drainage, which drives duck production potential down. And how much of that do we see during a drought? People going in and drain, I don't think it's. I, I don't think it's necessarily. I I think it's probably driven. I don't think it's driven by drought. I mean, we saw an increased interest in drainage because we were in this incredibly long wet cycle from 1994 to the early 2000s. And then in, you know, the mid 2000s through 2017, 2018, because farmers just had, you know, farmers were looking at a lot of their cropland that was underwater. So I bet you it's the inverse that's true. I think farmers probably gain an interest in drainage more when times are crazy wet. Hmm. And when they're crazy dry, because old farmers that have seen dry years will tell you that in wet years, those temporary and seasonal wetlands may be the best yield they have because they're only part of the field that has any residual moisture to start a crop the next spring. Right. And it's probably driven way more about commodity prices and input prices and land prices than it is wetness or drought. We've talked quite a bit about droughts, and I do want to move into the flooding, too much water side of it. So I guess my question is, can there be so much water in the in the um, you know up in the Dakotas where the production's happening? Can there be too much water that it's actually counterproductive to waterfowl, or is more water always better? More water is almost always better, and the reason I say almost is because well, let me just explain the difference between drought and wetness, because I think it's important to get to sort of an understanding of what drives duck production in the prairies. When we're wet to start, we attract the highest potential number of breeding pairs to the best available wetland habitat, which is in places like North Dakota, South Dakota, southwestern Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the high line of Montana. When conditions are dry, there's just not as many rooms available in the amp. So we lose the potential to hold those ducks in really high density. So that's number one. Number two is we know that the most, one of them, especially in today's landscape, where we have generally pretty low nest success and pretty low production as a result of predation, we know re-nesting is really important. And so... You know, you take a species like mallards, in wet years, they'll re-nest up to five times. Mm. Okay? And so if you put five nests on the dirt, 
your chance of success is in considerably higher than if you put one nest on the dirt, right? right. And so wetness on the prairies churns that re-nesting effort. If it's dry on the prairies, ducks don't re-nest because after they lose their first nest, there's not the nutrients that they need to go through the process again, okay? So that's number two, re-nesting rates. Number three is duckling survival. Every study that's been done on duckling survival in the prairies says that duckling survival is strongly correlated with the number of wet seasonal wetlands on the landscape. That's the best brood habitat possible. And so when those wetlands are not available, ducklings are forced to be in a donut hole in a small prairie wetland with no emergent vegetation, and they're very vulnerable to predation. When and there's the predators lots, probably all circle around that one little hole. Exactly. And think about that on a massive landscape, right? Um, when the prairies are wet, you're flooding those seasonal wetlands. There's incredible amounts of emergent cover. You've got a bunch of water that's this deep with emergent vegetation. It's full of bugs. The ducklings survive at a very high rate. So when water is abundant, you're getting... Pairs of the best landscapes, you're having high renesting rates, and you're having high duckling survival. So the only thing that's a challenge when you get flooding, and and it's especially a challenge when you're you kind of start here and then you get a big pulsy rain event, is for overwater nesters, species like canvasbacks and redheads. Um, I'll hear people say, "Well, isn't it going to flood mallard and pintail nests?" Not really, because the mallard and pintail nest may be, pintail may be nesting a mile away from the nearest water body, out in a mm -hmm. pasture somewhere. And mallards are typically nesting quite a distance from wetlands. So it really only impacts redheads and cans. And it pro, it's pretty localized where those flooding events would have sort of a population scale impact on a, even species like redheads or cans. So when pintails are nesting, let's say a mile away from the wetland, once they've got their little brood there, how do they, I guess I always assumed that they were really, really close to the, close to water. How do they deal with the little ducklings and get them close to a water source? They march them across. <laughs> and, and the interesting thing about duck broods, this is, I'm getting into Cliff Clave and duck duck facts here if anybody That's all right. if Go anybody if anybody in your audience knows remembers who cliff clavin was you you remember sure, Elliot. Sure. but i remember the interesting thing about it uh, when a let's say you've got a hen mallard the home range of a hen mallard is understood to be four square miles okay and she has a pear pond which is a territory her and her drake defended that's where her that was her pond and then she's going to go nest in the upland. What that female does is typically takes two incubation breaks a day. And when she's taking those incubation breaks, what she's doing is going out and searching. Hmm. She's looking at a bunch of different wetlands. And so you'd think you're a duck, you have web feet, you need water, you're nesting here, and there's a pond here. Well, this is a pond you'd go to. It isn't what they do. They may haul that brood to a pond that's a half mile the other direction because they perceive or I, I made some decision that's better brood habitat. Now, what we know about that first overland journey is that that's when we have catastrophic brood loss. 
they're little itty bitty fuzzballs. They're not quick. They're not smart. They're following mom. And if something comes in behind them, you can lose the whole kit and caboodle. So we know that that first 24 hours after hatch is a time of great peril to ducklings. When they get into the wetland, they can survive at pretty high rates, especially in that situation we described earlier where you've got lots of wet seasonals. Wow, that's fascinating. You're just, that's a lot of stuff that I, I didn't know. That I, For them to go a mile with those little ducklings, that's just... You got short little legs too, remarkable. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no way to defend themselves at all. All right, I would like for you to think about... Um, the duck population just in general, and give us a couple of things that we should be excited about and a couple things that maybe you're a little bit worried about as far as either specific species of ducks or the population in general. You know, I think um, I, I think we got to be concerned about pintail. Um, I think, you know, it's the last estimate we got from the Fish and Wildlife Service really low. Um the pintail harvest strategy is the the mean latitude of that population where where it settles is really important. Now the good news was the Dakotas were wet enough that we had a disproportionate number of those pintails settle pretty far south this year. And what we know is when pintails settle further south, we have greater production which means we have greater harvest potential, right? In terms of the models that we have to predict sustainable harvest. And, but had that population been further north, we might've been on the verge of a closed pintail season this year. Really? Wow. And so, you know, we always want it wet on the prairies, but I think in a year like this, where we've had pretty low pintail numbers, certainly the last estimate was really pretty low, um, you know, we know pintails are one of those species, probably, probably the most profound species that chases water. And, you know, we want some part of the prairies to have good water conditions this year to give those pintail a chance to kind of crank up the machine and get going again. You think there's any chance that just looking into your crystal ball that in 10 years, the pintails have made a massive recovery? And we're not even talking about it anymore. And the limits jumped to like two or three birds a hunt. Is that is that even on the horizon as a possibility? Well, you're asking me two questions, so I'll answer them in two parts. the The challenge with pintails is, you know, if you go back, you go back to 1956, they were more abundant than mallards. Now, I think there's a lot of people that look at that number and say, "Man, that's a survey anomaly." I don't think we had that many pintails, but that data points in our long term data set. Right. But even if you go back, you know, go back to the 70s uh, when during the points, 70s and early 80s, when we were in the point system, they were a 10 point duck. They were crazy abundant. The challenge with pintails. Meaning you could shoot 10 of them on a hunt, right? Because you had a 100 point limit. That was before my time, but my dad hunted during that. Yeah. You had a 100 point limit, so you could shoot 10 of them on a hunt. You could shoot 10 bull sprigs on a hunt. Oh wow! Oh my goodness! Just, I just one flashback. Please let me have just one flashback moment. <laughs> yeah. right? I would have loved to have shot ten chocolate heads in a day. But yeah. But so here's the challenge, though. The heart of the historic pintail range is in sort of western Saskatchewan and southern Alberta. 
in that part of the world has undergone very extensive wetland loss. So that's one problem. Number two is pintail are funny ducks. They're a duck that has generally been a duck of the short grass prairie. So they nest in crazy sparse nesting cover. Really sparse. You'd be amazed that a pintail would nest in that stuff. Mallards and gadwalls wouldn't dream of nesting in that stuff. So here's, the, here's an interesting thing that happened. And you've seen it happen in Kansas too. Is in the 80s, especially when it was dry, farmers employed no-till farming because they were trying to retain any bit of soil moisture they probably could. Plus, it meant less diesel, you know, less diesel spent on passes, built soil health, and all the rest of those things. So, no-till farming raged across any place in the Great Plains. The challenge with no-till farming was those pintails looked at that and said, "That's nesting cover." Mallards didn't, gadwalls didn't, blue-wing teal didn't, widgeon didn't. But pintails looked and said, boy, that looks just like the stuff I like to nest in. So they started nesting. Here's the problem. Nest success in that stuff is terrible. Because either you get found very easily by a raccoon or a skunk or a red fox, and if you avoid the predation risk, what happens in crop fields? They get seeded. <laughs> right. right. And so the other problem with pintails, two problems, a, they nest crazy early, so they feel the brunt of predation heavier because there's not a lot of alternate prey on the landscape. Not a lot of frogs, not a lot of mice, not a lot of other stuff to eat. And number two, they don't re-nest. I told you mallards will re-nest up to five times. Pintails will re-nest when conditions are wet, but they don't re-nest with the same intensity that mallards do. Right. And so you got a duck that's preferred habitat, wet small, shallow, ephemeral, temporary, and seasonal wetlands have been drained in, in the heart of their range, lots and lots and lots and lots of them. You've got this no-till thing riding over the top of that. And then you've got this life history strategy where they just don't re-nest a lot. And so you can look at areas where, you know, gadwall populations are doing fine. Gadwalls nest in crazy dense cover, and they can rely on more permanent or semi-permanent wetlands. So so they're in the same landscapes where pintail are struggling, gadwall are doing okay. And it's just based on their strategy and their habitat preferences. So there's probably nothing overly exciting on the horizon. Well, I, I mean, I think what we've done is we've recalibrated the new high. Like I think the new high pintail populations probably about four and a half million. I don't mm. think we have the potential to have five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half million pintail anymore. I think that potential is gone. I, yeah. you, you know, if we string a number of wet years across, you know, the prairie and hole like we did in 2010, 2011, 2012. Yeah, we can get back to those levels, but we're mm. never going to go back, I don't think, to seven million. Now, the second part of the question you asked is, can we harvest more? Um, hard to talk about that when they're their lowest observed levels in a long, long time. Right. It seems almost like uh, un, uncompassionate. <laughs> but, but if 
I, I think there's some work that can be done on the pintail models um, I, that, especially when we have pretty robust populations, that there probably could be more harvest opportunity. I think there are a lot of people that feel that way. But yeah. probably not worth talking about at a population where it was in, you know, twenty the spring of 2022. Right. So give us one thing that is you're really excited about as far as the population of the species, something that's really looking good. Or... You know, I, there's a bunch of ducks that have just sort of found a really good way to make a living in the new landscape. Gadwall are one that's pretty incredible. I mean, if, if you talk to hunters lots of places in the 70s or 80s, or if you look at the population data, there just were not many gadwalls out there. And I think sort of the long-term wet period we had uh, in the 90s and 2000s and, and really only interrupted by the last few years, uh, there are duck that really seem to do great in CRP. I mean, that's a population that we've just been, seem to have been building our principal <laughs> year over year over year over year and again they're not a duck that gets whacked by drought and so they just seem to keep plugging along spoonies are another one i know nobody's running out and raving about you know guys in louisiana love shooting gray ducks there are lots of guys that shoot spoonbills but they don't rave about it and they're not posting them on social media very often <laughs> right. um you know, blue wing and green wing teal are two other species that just keep trucking right along. They just, right. um, you know, again, I think we created this big reservoir of ducks and they just keep sustaining themselves. And blue wings and green wings are very different. Blue wings are a true prairie nesting duck. Um, you know, for most hunters, most places, the eastern Dakotas is where they get their blue wing teal from. Uh, green wing teal, on the other hand, are a more northerly nester up on the, you know, the parklands and the boreal. Um, and it seems like we have a never-ending supply of green wings. Right. And, and I think part of the reason for that is, I, you know, you look how many green wings hunters shoot in a year across all four flyways, and you look at the population, you say, well, I can't be. I just don't think we count green wings all that well. They're a little tiny duck in places with lots of trees. I think it's, I think that population is probably significantly understated. Yeah, I'm just in love with teal. I, I feel like, especially, my personal love for ducks is I love the mallard number one and the blue wing teal number two, and which most people wouldn't put the blue wing teal up that high. But here we've got the September teal season, so it's like. And for us in, in Kansas, when the ducks leave, they leave. Right. I mean, you'll go out in the summer, you'll see a few little wood ducks sprinkling around, but, I mean, that's it. And so when you get in September and you see your first little pack of blue wing in a marsh, whether you're out scouting or whatever, that is a very special, special yep. thing. And, like, the blue wing season is almost like an own little set of its own. And we are blessed to have world-class teal Absolutely hunting. Absolutely are. And it's just, I love I love that duck, and they're great table fare. They're just spectacular birds to me. Yeah, I, I mean, I grew up, you know, hunting diving ducks in Minnesota as a kid, and Bluebill was our duck, right? That was the duck we cherished. It wasn't the duck we shot the most of. We probably shot more wood ducks and ringnecks than we shot bluebills, but 
you know, that's what I grew up as a kid. And, you know, we all love shooting mallards. <laughs> shooting mallards never gets old. Shooting pintails no. never gets old. But I've gotten to the point where, you know, we don't, depending on the year, um, I, I haven't shot too many blue-winged teal the last couple of years because when we're dry here, they just, they're to you pretty quick or to Texas right. or to Louisiana. Um, but, you know, in the early parts of our duck season, I won't shoot a mallard because I know that that mallard's going to be pin feathery and scrawny and I'm going to have a hell of a time picking drakes. And so I'm going to town on blue wings. Mm -hmm. And and I've gotten to the point where, though, my favorite duck in the, the way I really like to shoot is get in on big green wing shoots and just cherry pick drake green wings. Right. And I just, right. it's one of my very favorite things in the world. Yeah, just wonderful little duck, so. We're going to take a change of pace here. I'm going to ask you about something that I've been talking to several guests that I've had, and it's something I feel like the waterfowl population in general needs to put more thought into, and that's it kind of ties into shot selection, wounded loss. I know there were some studies, I think, done by Tom Roster, if I'm not mistaken, yep. about, about wounded loss. And so I really, this is a topic I want to come back to and just bring up and get people's thoughts. And so... The question I want to ask you is how much value should we give to a singular duck in a way that it's going to change our change our behavior? Uh, or I wouldn't say change our behavior. Put into our thoughts about our behavior. For example, if you shoot at a duck at 65, 70 yards, you've got a really good chance of wounding it. So if, if in you my hit opinion, it. You yeah. If you, hit, if you right. hit it. So that's a shot that I wouldn't want to take. Right. Because to me, the life of that one duck is valuable enough to me that I don't want to do that. Right. And so I guess as hunters, how much value should we place in the individual life of a duck to change our behavior? For, for example, I was out hunting this Saturday and I came up to my hole and there was a wounded mallard, winged mallard in the hole. Fully alive winged mallard. And so I've got a decision to make. Is, that, is the life of that one duck worth enough for me killing it and using it towards my limit or is it not valuable enough i'm like well it's all right i'm not going to kill it maybe i don't know how long it's going to take it to die in this marsh maybe an eagle will get it maybe it, i don't know will it be alive a month later two months later so to me i felt like the life was valuable enough of that one mallard drake for me to sacrifice one duck out of my limit yeah so i just what are your thoughts on i mean on that? first of all i think it's important for your listeners to understand hunting harvest has a pretty low impact on duck populations overall. And that's a biological thing. Now, you're kind of asking two questions. So biologically, I don't think we need to worry about it a great deal. But here's what I think, and here's what I do that I hope isn't overly preachy. But I think I think we owe it to ducks to be conscious about the shots we're taking, make sure we're taking shots of birds that we can recover. Um, and if you have a cripple, um, I can't say I always do it, but I more often than not try to include that bird in my bag. Cause I know that's mm -hmm. a bird that is not flying South for another hunter to enjoy. Um, and so I think, but I think that's a really personal sort of decision. And I, 
Um, You know, I'm going to teach my kids that, you know, if we cripple a duck, that's one less we're going to shoot. And here's why it's really important to be picky about shot selection. I'm, I get really, one of the things that I get pretty picky about, especially in certain circumstances, is we don't shoot the third shot in an auto loader at a flying duck. Right. Because that's a duck that more often than not will be hard to recover. Now, that isn't the case if you're hunting a dry field or you're hunting a really shallow open marsh. That's not the case. But a lot of the places where I hunt, the likelihood of you recovering a duck shot with the third shell is really pretty low. And so the right. third shell is there to deal with a wounded bird or a cripple. It is not meant to be shot at a flying duck. And so, but again, that's very circumstantial. You know, Elliot, the world doesn't owe me any more dead ducks. I've shot a lot of ducks. So I can afford to be a little picky and a little choosy and a little snooty. I don't right. expect anybody to do, you know, if I'm a guy that was hunting a public marsh in Illinois or Kansas or Minnesota, um, I don't know if I'd expect people to do what I've chosen to do. But I'm 52 right. years old and I've killed a lot of ducks. <laughs> and so, yeah. but I just figured out what works for me. And the thing that I'm pretty conscious about is that third shot. In some situations, yeah. just is not worth taking. Yeah, I think that's the best thing we can do um, with wounded loss is, is be very careful on that on that third shot. And one thing, because I'm, I'm blessed I get to hunt quite a bit. I mean, I don't hunt as much as people that have you know, freedom in their jobs, but I hunt every weekend from September almost through mid-February, but the average hunter only goes out like four or five times a year. And you know what the average average duck harvest is in the United States, Elliot? What? Take a guess. Per hunter? Per hunter, seasonal bag limit, seasonal bag, cumulative Someone that buys a license, I would say their average is between three and five ducks a year. You guessed right. When I asked that question, I was in louisiana with our volunteers last week and this guy said 50 and this guy said 25 and i said oh, that's right. six and a half yeah that's 90 or 10 percent of the hunters kill 90 percent of the ducks or, is the, the average good percentage yeah <laughs> right so for guys like you and i to ask the guy that goes out three times a year oh that's a little it. too far no that's a little too far you shouldn't shoot that those guys are out like three times a year they want to pull the trigger right they want to pull the trigger. and i've gotten i've gotten very snooty about killing hens but again, right. I get more, you know, I've shot a lot of ducks. I don't expect the father and son who haven't shot a duck in two weekends to make the same decisions I do. Uh, I just don't. Mm-hmm. But I, I, and I, I, I preach that, that very same thing of like, well, I can't judge that guy. I can't right. judge him. It's how I do it. But I constantly have to check myself on right. it. I constantly fall into, you shouldn't do it that way. Right. Do it like me. And then I'm saying, well, you can't judge other people, but it's hard because we just get so passionate about the way we do it, the way we've been taught. There's just like water swatting. I mean, guys that are against water swatting are passionately <laughs> against water swatting. It's like, what What do you care if I water swat a bird? How does it affect your day? But then I find myself, I've got to check myself all the time with for that same example. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think the standard is however you choose to employ it, when you're in the blind and listen, these things change, right? It changes on the day, changes on all sorts of things. If I've had mm-hmm. two crappy hunts in a row, eh, I, you know, the, my virtuous 
ness might dissipate a little bit, right? But, <laughs> right. I mean, I think the thing for hunters is understand that this resource we're hunting is pretty special. Right. And in the the sort of circumstance of events that it takes from a duck to get to wherever it came from to mm -hmm. over our decoys is sort of a miracle. And yes. it isn't, we shouldn't, I'm not saying we should feel bad about it. We should be impressed by it. We should be respected. We should respect that resource incredibly. Um, and, and then do what you want to do in the settings that you find yourselves in, right? Yeah. There's going to be a lot of hunters that say, Devney's out of his mind to not take that third shot. Well, I will tell you, when I'm hunting snow geese in the spring, I'm shooting three every time they're in the decoys. But you know what? I know I can recover them all. Right? Right. If I've got a bird out there at 300 yards, I know black dog that's over here sleeping on the sofa is going to pick that goose up. If right. I do that same thing with the blue winged teal in a cattail marsh, I know black dog here is going to have a heck of a lot harder time than doing it in a wheat stubble field in the spring. Mm -hmm. Right. My general rule with the shot selection is I don't want to pull the trigger on any shot that I'm not going to be mad at myself for missing. Right. Because if I'm not mad at myself for missing, it means it's not a high-quality shot. Right. And I try to stick to that. But, you know, we all, I'm not perfect because, like you said, on a slow day or whatever, sometimes our our passionate values start to <laughs> slip a little bit. <laughs> all right. So what um, what is your thought of the growing trend? I know this has always been kind of a southern thing, but it's definitely creeping up, especially with social media and YouTube videos. What would what is your opinion on the growing trend of big hunting groups from like six to twelve guys um, in marshes and fields? Do you have any opinion on bigger groups of I really, gatherings? For I really hunts? don't. It's not my, you know, six people's a basketball team with a sub, from my right. perspective, right? A, yeah. A yeah. Twelve people's a football team with a sub. So it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not the way I want to hunt. Um, yeah. But. Here's the thing, if you're a guy of average means in Memphis or Little Rock and you want to lease a rice field, you're probably going to have to go in with some buddies, right, to mm -hmm. afford that. And, yeah. and I think that's what you're seeing is the scarcity of access and opportunity is driving a lot of that, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got guys that, have got groups of guys they hunt with and they scout together. It's a sort of communal effort. You scout this place, I'll scout this place. We'll go out there, we'll see what's happening. And then we're all gonna pile in together, right? And it's a way for guys to enjoy the resource, right? And yeah. so I don't have an opinion on it other than the fact that, you know, I don't wanna spend a lot of time, my time duck hunting with big parties. But again, I'm not in a situation where I'm not in a situation where we need to do it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and but I I don't I don't think I don't have any sort of moral or ethical. I think I think it's a function of reduced access and opportunity, and guys finding a way to stay on the ducks and scout efficiently and build a network of folks. And when one guy, you know, we're not all going to hit every day when we scout, and so the number the greater number of bodies you have out there, the more likely it is that you're going to, somebody's going to find success 
and then everybody in turn benefits from that scouting success. So I think that's really, you know, I think that's probably what's driving it as much as anything. Yeah. I was talking to, uh, uh, actually the last podcast I did was with a public land manager from Kansas named Matt Farmer. And, and his stress on that topic was, as you're doing it, make sure someone is in control of it and someone is, people know you've got three ducks, you've got four ducks, right. where you're not, you're following the rules. If right. everyone's shooting at the last duck, that you can't, it's just illegal. Right. It's just illegal. Well, and I think, yeah, and, and listen, we're pretty, um, you know, by the nature of what I do for a living, I'm pretty squeaky clean on that stuff. And, <laughs> you know, if we're hunting with two guys or three guys, everybody's got a duck strap and every duck has known who shot it. And it's going on that person's strap. Just because I think, you know, there's no party hunting in waterfowl in the United States. And so uh, in game wardens, you know, game wardens are going to be conscious of that stuff. I've been checked by game wardens and had, you know, hunting in a dry field one day. The guy drove up. And one of the guys in the hunting party was giving me a hard time because I was spending all this time being very intentional. You shot this widgeon, you shot this pintail, you shot this greenhead, mm-hmm. you shot this greenhead, and being very intentional about putting them behind everybody's blind. That game warden came up, and he said, boy, you guys have done, this is really clean. You guys have everything exactly the way it should be. And so I got to snicker at the guy that was giving me a hard time all day. Yeah, right. And I'd say that's just a great message. It's if you're going to hunt in big groups, be clean about yep. it. Someone kind of needs to be the leader of it. Just like if you're going to, I, I visited Joel Strickland's. Uh, he works at a yeah. private. I know Joel. Um, Cypress, right. A good friend of mine. And so I was, I, that's, the, that's the first kind of guided thing I went to in Arkansas. And you see them doing it the right way. It's got, they've got the straps. They've got it down. Someone needs to take that role in that group and be that ambassador yep. to it yep. to make sure that it's clean. All right, I've got a couple more things. I know I'm taking up a little bit of your time. I, I hope that you have a few more minutes here. Yep. Um, so I've got uh, the people here listening live with us are um, from my Patreon account. And so I, I asked them, does anyone have any questions they would like me to ask John? And I got a couple really interesting ones. The first one's from Tom Markley. He's curious about the three splash rule in so kind of explain what that is, first of all. And then is there any chance that that could have a negative effect on um, too many hen, too many pintail hens killed, for example? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So just to give you a sense, um, there's been some innovations. In, in a lot of this innovation, is, and I'm not just a homer, Elliot. You and I are both Central Flyway guys. Right. Um, but the Central Flyway has really been thinking about alternate regulations okay and i don't know how if you remember elliot or maybe you weren't even maybe kansas wasn't even one of the hunter choice states but the central flyway years ago had what they called the hunter's choice concept and basically as you could shoot five ducks that was it the total top bag limit was five ducks but and then hunters could select either a hen mallard, a hen pintail, or, or a canvasback. Okay? And then they compared that. They split the flyway in half, not this way or this way. They split it in half. Some states were, depending on what your proportion of pintail harvest was, I think. They tried to decide if that strategy would result in increased or decreased pintail harvest. 
Let me make sure I'm understanding. So you could before the season started, you had to you say I get my five ducks. Nope. nope. And then I get to pick. Okay. Nope. Explain that a little. Each hunt. I'm so you could. So if you were on a hunt where you know there was a high likelihood that you'd see a canvas back, maybe you'd not shoot a hen mallard or a pintail, or vice versa. Okay. Right. Okay. So it was. You shoot one of those three on a hunt. One of those three on a hunt. Okay. Not one of each, one of those three, and the top limit was five. And so what they did was, what they wanted to do was to see, one of the things we've heard about forever with waterfall hunting is regulatory complexity. And it was their way to say, well, let's test this and see if it's a strategy to deal with regulatory complexity. And they split the states up. Some states were hunter's choice. Some states did it the old-fashioned way. They interviewed hunters that participated in hunter's choice, and they tried to understand if it was a good thing or a bad thing to move forward with. This is, I think, a three-year experiment. Now, we don't have the hunter's choice concept anymore. So that tells you how it worked out. Now, Nebraska and I think South Dakota did this three-splash rule, which is really two different kinds of licenses. One being sort of the regular old Joe Duck Hunter license, which gets you a six duck limit in the central flyway. That's five greenheads, two redheads, one scop for, you know, depending on how your state's managing scop, wood ducks, all the different species restrictions within the bag. The notion of the three splash rule or the novice license is to give those folks that are new to duck hunting, a situation where they just go out and shoot three ducks. They don't need to be able to identify them on the wing. They don't need to be subjected to one pintail, two redheads, two canvasbacks, whatever, whatever, whatever. Just go out and shoot three ducks. Mm-hmm. And so to the credit to Nebraska and South Dakota, credit to the Central Flyway, for advancing it as an ocean and credit to the Fish and Wildlife Service to allow this experiment because that's what it is. It's an experiment. And so what we're going to do is evaluate things like hen mallard harvest, pintail harvest, canvasback harvest, redhead harvest to see if anything's happening. I think it's incredibly unlikely that that'll be a problem. And then ask hunters what they think. Did you like this? Is this something we should operationalize? Um, if you're my kids and you got a guy that spends more time with ducks than the average bear, because I get to spend all summer with them too, right? My kids will probably want to shoot a big pile of ducks. Sure. <laughs> but if you're somebody somewhere, it may be way easier to just shoot the first three ducks that come in or the mm-hmm. first three ducks you can hit and be done with it. So, I think it's I think it's a really innovative, thoughtful way to evaluate a new way to deal with regulatory this regulatory complexity that we know has been a problem for waterfall hunting for a long time. And I think there's very limited likelihood that it has negative sort of population impacts or even impacts on harvest rate. Right. And have you heard anything as far as how they feel the um, that the experiment is going? Is it positive, negative? I think it's still pretty early. Um, this is I'm year sure th- two, I believe. Yeah, I think, I think it is year two. I, You know, they'll do a good, I think it, I, if 
don't quote me, but I think it's a three-year evaluation. And, and I know they're doing intensive surveying. They're doing a good work looking at the harvest. I mean, they're good, thoughtful people that are running these things. And, you know, they'll do a good debriefing on it. But I don't think you need to worry too much about too many dead hen pintails. Right. Okay. Last one. This one was asked by Scott Hill, and I won't read the whole thing. But he's asking about the Michigan mallards. And he's saying that it's been found through a study done by MSU doctoral student Ben Baconin. It's been found that 62% of hen mallards captured for GPS tracking studies are hybrid with farm-raised ducks. These pen-raised ducks are getting into the population through being released by hunt clubs. And there's more there to it. But what do you know about this study and what are what do we know about this issue? So I'm less familiar with the, with the study in Michigan. But a professor by the name of Phil Lavaretsky from Texas, um, I think Texas A&M, A&M Kingsville. Sorry, Phil, if you're listening that I butchered your home institution. Um, but he's been looking at Atlantic Flyway Mallards and the influence of this old world Mallard genetics on the free flighted population. So just to give people a little context for this is that historically hunt clubs in New York, in Maryland, and elsewhere were releasing a bunch of these captive reared mallards. Now, we're not talking about tower shoots. What we're talking about is raise a bunch of ducks, put them out in the wild. And in Maryland, they've got a name. They're called registered shooting areas. Okay, now my boss, Dr. Frank Rohr, actually did some of the really seminal work on this topic because it's been controversial. Fish and Wildlife Service has hated duck releases for a long, mallard releases for a long, 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 long time. And I think they commissioned Frank to do this research to demonstrate that these ducks are the spawn of Satan they're bringing disease into the population. There's all these negative effects. What Frank found, and I'm going to summarize, and I'm it'd probably do a marginally good job of reporting Frank's results, is those ducks were really good at their job. You know what their job is, Elliot? What's that? To get shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they had incredibly low survival. So I think at that point, the sort of concern about disease, you know, genetic inflow, all those things sort of dissipated. So now you've got, you know, to put a, to put in greater context. So now you have a situation in the Atlantic Flyway where eastern mallards were in pretty significant decline um, from the late 1990s up until a few years ago, and. We don't know as much about eastern mallards as we do about mallards in the traditional survey area. We just don't. Um, we've only been collecting population data on those ducks since 1991, so we don't have huge long-term data. We know that mallards probably didn't exist in high, in high numbers in the east anyways. Those ducks are probably largely exports from you know, the traditional survey area, the prairies in the, in the, uh, in the upper Midwest. 
but that population's been in decline. That, that population decline triggered a reduction in the mallard limit over the last several years from four, like it is in the Mississippi Flyway, to two. It got cut in half. Um, so looking for solutions, a number of academics got interested about all the things that could potentially be going on. We've been involved in some great research, as have lots and lots of other people. But Lavaretsky started looking at the it started to look at genetics. And what he found is there's a significant percentage. I don't know if it I it can't quote the numbers uh offhand like your uh listener did. And I think and I don't know if it's higher or lower than the Michigan study, but there's a significant signal in that eastern mallard population of these old world mallards. Now, again, you've got new world mallards, which is the stuff that happens in North Dakota and Saskatchewan, then you've got these old world mallards. And, and the question is, why does it matter? Potentially, and again, I'm not an expert on the subject. You could have Phil on and he can do a way better job. Phil Lavaretsky or Dr. Dr. Phil Lavaretsky or Dr. Mike Schumer could do a way better job on this. So you're getting the John Debney 101 version of this. Right. Well, maybe you can give me their contact information. I can have a side podcast because yeah. this is really interesting. But the, the notion is those ducks are a little bit different morpho morphologically, meaning they're built differently. A little shorter beaks, hmm. may not be as great at foraging, may not be as great at nest attendance, may not be as great at reproduction. So mm -hmm. th that's the notion. And there's a very clear signal that there's a lot of those critters in the system. Um, and, you know, again, I'm not familiar with uh, the Lukeman study as much as I am Lavaretsky, just because I've been thinking about Eastern Mallards a lot because of the decline. But, you know, there's evidence, I think, in suggestion that that is shifting a little bit you know obviously you know nobody's been releasing a lot of mallards in michigan but my guess is you know ducks from maryland or some other place in the atlantic flyway have probably ended up as part of that population and that's why you're getting that genetic inflow well thank you so much you have hit every single topic with an expert level of knowledge. I really, really appreciate you coming on here and spending this time with us and talking ducks. I'm sure my listeners will agree that I, I know we. I could sit around and listen to you talk for hours. So, <laughs> my dog <laughs> is my, so my Labrador is not as nearly as interested in what I have to say as you are. I can assure you that he's been pretty <laughs> bored to tears with this whole conversation. His only <laughs> the only duck conversation that he wants to hear is his is tag or back that's when he's real interested in talking about like, what's tag what's tag that's his that's his name t-a-i-g oh okay yeah all right how, how old is he tag is seven and a half which is oh, kind of wow. i had a moment i was in getting ready for hunt test season and looking at uh hunt secretary and entry express last night looking at upcoming hunt tests i'm like crap my dog's gonna be eight in july and he's He's a wonderful dog, and you, you get that moment where you're like, you know, it's finite, right? Right, yeah. 
That's not fun. Are you an AKC or HRC or both guy? I, I'm I'm started as a big HRC guy. Um, started a club. We actually have a club here in Bismarck that me and a number of the Delta guys and uh, and now we've actually got an officer from the president of the club now is a gal that did her graduates work at Delta and works for DU here in Bismarck called Duck Factory HRC. So it's got the right name for right. a bunch of people who care about ducks. But I'm also running AKC master tests now. And so, Fantastic. you know, the problem is, you know, it's talking with a friend about running the grand and you try to figure out how you're going to do all these things. And you just come to the uh -huh. conclusion, unless you're a pro, it's hard to have a full-time job it'd be a decent father and husband and play all these dog games. Yeah. The grand is not typically an amateur trainer's game. Is it? No. I mean, of course, neither are HRC finish tests or master tests. And you know, this guy I've got laying on my floor here has been amateur trained, amateur handled all the way through. Yeah. And it's, it's fun to be the lone unicorn at hunt tests that a guy that has only one kennel in the back of his truck. <laughs> right. I just start. I've got a three-year-old um, black female from Flatlander Kennels up in Nebraska, yep. and she's three now. So I just got into it last year in HRC. So she got her season title last year, and so we're moving up to finish. I've only done HRC at this point, but so this summer I didn't know how much I liked it until this off season because lately I've been really daydreaming about it because I wanted to get her finished because this is the first dog that I've really put in effort and training. Yep. And I got this dog, super high-powered dog. A lot of her siblings have already passed the grand. And so I'm like, I want to prove that I can finish this dog myself. Yep. So it started out of more as like, I'm going to prove to myself that I can get this dog where it wants to go. And now that I've been in it, I'm like, okay, now it's just because it's really fun. Yeah. No, I, I love it. Um, and, you know, I'm an HRC judge now, and I'm judging finish now. And Great. so I... I really, I in just love training, and I love, I love, you know, I really enjoyed the AKC game, but the HRC game and the family and the camaraderie, I just, you know, those are some of my dearest friends in the world I've met through the Hunt Test game. Right. So, it is fun. I, I was at the South Dakota. I can't remember what city it was in South Dakota, because I was at the South Dakota HRC test. Sioux Falls. Sioux Falls, right? Yep. yep. Yeah, and I'll be there next year too. I've got uh, four, three events, one in Nebraska, one in South Dakota, one in Kansas, and so I figure she she has not failed a test yet through season. She just breezed through it. So I figure if I can get four out of six this summer, four out of six is what we need. Here's the deal, we'll Elliot. Let's talk. You're gonna find it's a big jump from season to finish. I, I know, I know, I know it is. But I will say, not uh, probably overconfident, this dog, for some reason, she actually performs better at hunt tests okay. than she does in training, which is, like, most people say it's opposite. You expect, expect like, 60% out of it. But with her, she is just, every hunt test she's ever been on, she has been on her game. I mean, just lot. Now, I'm not being overconfident about finish, but <laughs> I, if you ain't the finished that I've watched, I think she has a good chance at passing four out of yep. six. She has, she can on the right days get that four out of six passes to get her finished. Now, will she, I don't know, but I think she's got the opportunity to do so. <laughs> I, I can tell you in your entire listening audience that we didn't go four for six. It took us 
a long right. a long time to figure it out and figure out the factors and the good news Elliot is when you're done with the experience you'll have a better dog and you'll be a way better handler and trainer as a result of it because that's what I learned very clearly from that experience right yeah I, I ran into another HRC guy that's 15 minutes from my house with a tech pond and all the setups and so when I when I that when I clicked in with him I'm like okay now we got a different game here. Because <laughs> yeah. that's a big part of it for guys like us. It's like you can't simulate the hunt test stuff unless you have the equipment to do it. Yeah, and so, the setups, yep. Right, so we will see. But anyway, thank you again for coming on. Um, just love having you on here. And hopefully at some point in time, maybe once a year, you can come in and we can, we can talk more. And if you're going to be at, uh, we'll keep in touch. I want to get that contact name from you. And then if you do happen to end up be at the HRC in Sioux Falls, I, meet that's you one that, that's one that's on my circuit. So I may be down Sweet. there. Great. Well, thank you again. And this is Elliot. I'm with John Devney from Delta. Oh, and again, guys, if you want to donate to help ducks, donate to Delta, get, give some, if you're, if you're into giving some money to con conservation, please seek them out, donate some money help help our population of ducks so this is elliot with john and this has been the north american waterfowler Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.